welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on with our reading of Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle. And this time we'll be having a look at chapter 3, which is called Unity and Division Within Appearances. So, what we have a look at is quite a number of topics. Is the spectacle in its relation to globalization, politics, celebrities, and then rounding off with a discussion of banality and a dissatisfaction with commodities. So, before we get started into it, what we always like to do is have a nice brief recap of what we touched in the last episode. So, in the last episode, what we discussed was commodity fetishism. That is, commodity is a fetishism as we make things into more than what they are. We worship them in a religious style of idolatry. And this is where also in this chapter... De Boer touches upon the way in which you have this religious fervor, as he says, and this whole religious style and the way in which people can get worked up in, let's say, Pentecostal churches and so forth, and the way in which people speak in tongues and so on. If people seen the movie Borat, that's a really good example. There's the specific image, the way in which Guy Debord really makes us want to think about, the way in which people get this all worked up, speaking tongues and so forth, all to do with how worked up we get towards commodities. And it's no at all difficult to imagine that why because we have this relation into commodities in a contemporary setting and what is the way in which we can have an example of that easy enough the way in which people worship apple products and line up religiously waiting on the new product to come out and therefore feverishly waiting to get their hands on it it's all have this nice overlap between this religious style of idolatry and the way in which we also worship commodities. Also what we touched upon in the last episode was how people became estranged or alienated from each other as we are separated from those who produce things and we're also become estranged from being able to afford the things that's being produced. And then we also touched upon the idea of the creation of leisure. And leisure is created from needing people to consume the abundance of things that are being produced. People are made into this combination of workers and consumers. And what we discussed is you're treated one way whilst you're at work, having to meet a bunch of targets and so forth. And then when you're come out of work, you're suddenly treated like an adult, as what De Boer says, you're suddenly treated like a grown-up with your own valued opinion that everybody wants to take on board. And then suddenly, why is that the case? Because they want the money from you and they want you to buy the products in the first place. Then we also touched upon how we use things becomes part of a counterfeit life. 
And this is to indulge ourselves in ideally either is advertised to us in trying to attain an ideal lifestyle that's precisely portrayed back to us. So that nicely covers all the various topics that we covered in the last episode. Now let's get stuck into the topic of globalization. And there's a great quote here from chapter 3 to kick us off. Modern society has already used the spectacle to invade the surface of every continent. It sets the stage for the formation of indigenous ruling classes and frames their agendas. So this is just another way of saying that the spectacle has a global outlook and transforms its agenda based upon each country that it goes into. And one of the examples that immediately came to mind with this was the way in which McDonald's looks differently in every single country that it's in. And this is from the article, What McDonald's Looks Like in Six Countries by Marguerite Ward from the website mike.com. And we're just going to touch upon some examples as we go through here. So, firstly, in India, then, we have McDonald's looking quite different from elsewhere in the world. Why is this? As it says, the McDonald's welcome party was not so cheery in India. Many people feared the food giant would continue to use beef products in the Hindu country, avoiding massive uproar and the legal issues of offering a traditional menu. McDonald's doesn't serve beef or pork at its India locations. However, many reject McDonald's locations near places of worship. In India, the McAloo Tiki is a menu item you, you won't find anywhere else. And the spiced potato croquette in that familiar McBun is an item of choice. So here already we have... a. Um, mindset for McDonald's and in India precisely offering vegetarian options and avoiding beef or pork then offering specifically menu choices for that specific country and here we have another example of this in Malaysia as it states citizens students and guest workers have tried to raise wages in Malaysian McDonald's for years, including protests synchronized with protesters from around the globe. While McDonald's won't address any workers' grievances, it happily serves prosperity to its customers in a chicken or beef burger layered in black pepper sauce and onion. It's double prosperity burger. So here again we have a specific problem within the country in this given case trying to raise wages which is of course not just unique to Malaysia but also we had within the United States pretty recently as well where people were going on strike and trying to raise the minimum wage and trying to raise the amount of wages that they were earning but at the same time, here we have another point of offering a specific exclusive burger. So it's not going to address the actual problem of giving people more wages that they quite rightly need 
in order to live in the first place. But here you have McDonald's say, okay, well, we won't address any of those grievances, but here's a specialized burger for that country. Then in France, we have another example. After withstanding a series of militant attacks led by outraged farmers, McDonald's set up a shop in a country once known exclusively for its high-end eating habits. To meet high-end French culinary standards, McDonald's knew it couldn't just offer anything to Parisian customers. With a McCafe attached to every restaurant, a hungry customer can order their choice of macaroons, tiramisu or a slice of cheesecake and this is where the irony of course of the situation comes out is to say okay you are in France you're in Paris high culinary place in the world to eat then you go into McDonald's and McDonald's is trying to say it's just like everywhere else in Paris and you're going to have all those fabulous French delicacies like a macaroon to eat. <laughs> so, again, what's great about this article is the way in which every single time McDonald's has tried to go into a country, it's always had this form of opposition. But, interestingly enough, it's where we can see at the same time as there's all this opposition, McDonald's posits itself as part of that culture. Don't worry, we're not opposed to this country's views. We're going to offer a vegetarian option in India. Don't worry about specifically the culinary things for Paris. We're going to offer ourselves all these fabulous things like macaroons delicious so there's this whole idea that just because it comes from america you have this immediate sense that oh all what people are gonna get is just solely american food which is not the case of course you can get a little bit of what exactly the country wants and demands be that vegetarian food for example and what is this really getting the point at here is to say that the spectacle in itself is a thing that changes and morphs itself and doesn't have a specific allegiance in a country sense of it and we can clearly see that through mcdonald's as well as you could just choose other examples as well to say here we have specifically an american brand at least you would think it would be but then it changes itself and morphs itself as it goes around the world so therefore we have precisely a nice sort of link into what we were discussing with frank this whole idea of this little bit of bourgeois lifestyle and so forth that you can get just go and nip in and get a macaroon for example just come over here and get this specialized meal and so forth we're no different even though you may identify as with being american that would be incorrect because actually we're part of the country we're adopting whatever brand and values that the country has 
just in the way in which Frank was talking about the bourgeois way of doing things is everything goes into steam or everything goes into air which is just to say that it operates in a very much revolutionary way the way in which it changes and morphs itself to precisely adopt and transform and so forth to fit in with that country's values so that nicely covers ourselves on the whole globalization side of things next let's go into politics and bureaucracy which don't worry we have a really good example here we're not going to suddenly <laughs> go into anything too technical but got another great quote that says bureaucratic regimes in power in certain industrialized countries have their own particular type a spectacle easy enough thing to understand is that politicians use imagery in order to invoke particular emotions or particular imagery may be associated with particular political views the thing that immediately hits is an idea for this is of course the way in which the nazis and soviet russia used imagery in order to try and evoke specific emotions and the way in which they precisely tried to make people feel empathy for the regime or if that was in case of soviet russia have that whole emotion and evocative nature of doing your part for the country for instance but we also have a contemporary example for this and the one that came to mind was the barack obama hope poster and that is precisely very famous image now of barack obama with red white and blue imagery sort of sitting there in a sort of contemplative way with the words hope underneath and let's just give a little bit of background to this from the wikipedia page as it states the barack obama hope poster is an image of barack obama designed by artist shepherd fairy which was widely described as iconic and came to represent his 2008 presidential campaign the image's popularity led the guardian's laura barton to proclaim that the image acquired the kind of instant recognition of jim fitzpatrick's Che guevara poster and is surely set to grace t-shirts coffee mugs and the walls of student bedrooms in the years to come and we have a quote as well from fairy here from the medium.com website and it's an article obama hope poster by mac smith and the quote from shepherd ferry says a lot of people were digging obama but they didn't have any way to symbolically show their support it became very clear that the demand for an image like that had not been supplied and that the obama supporters were very hungry for it and were very motivated to spread it I think that's just a really key quote as well that suddenly here we have a demand for precisely a spectacle give me an image that i can get behind and support and have all our feelings put into 
and therefore producing that image, people were hungry for precisely that image and motivated then to spread it around. So, for the Obama Hope poster then, exactly as what the quote from Laura Barton says, incredibly iconic image now, comparable to that Che Guevara, very famous image as well, the way in which you have precisely everything that you need or another way in which we'd say here in the UK it does everything that it says on the tin <laughs> because it says hope and you have a picture of Obama so therefore what is Obama going to give us hope and in with that the idea of change and just what pops into mind as well is <laughs> is that idea for Randy Marsh running around in his underpants from South Park going, change, change, change. <laughs> but I think Randy Marsh running around saying change really manages to sort of embody the whole political campaign back from 2008 because it was it was coming off of having had George W. Bush, who wasn't seen as a great president by a great many of people, and so people wanted something different, they wanted change, and who was seen as that symbolic image of change was Barack Obama. Not only was he going to provide change, he was also going to be the very first black president. And so, therefore, people got behind Obama in a very incredibly strong way. And that image that says of hope precisely gave everybody that image that they were looking for that had not been supplied. And therefore, people were wanting it. And Shepard Ferry put all the sort of hope of everybody in Obama into one image and therefore everybody then spread the image about. Interestingly we have this relation mark into the spectacle in its religious idolatry sort of part here isn't it? The way in which people can worship politicians or worship people in a specific pseudo religious way because of what they represent. Just kind of in a tangent, you can have that in a very minor novel way, the way in which people can worship and get behind rock bands, for example, and have their favourite musician, David Bowie, Jim Morrison, whoever it would be, all about your walls. It's the same way here for politicians as well, although it's much more popular to put up your favourite musician than it would be to do and put to put on your wall a politician, for example. But here it comes back into that point of it has that comparable relation to religious idolatry, worship, worship precisely in the belief and the opinion of which is being evoked. Or if it's in a musician sense, worship of the band and the music. So let's move from politicians into the realm of celebrities and quite a good chunk of chapter three deals with celebrities. So I've got a nice couple of bits of short chunky quotes for us to work through. So as it says, stars, 
spectacular representations of living human beings. I think that's an amazing line to start us off. Stars, spectacular representations of living human beings. Project this general banality into images of permitted roles. The function of these celebrities is to act out various lifestyles or social political viewpoints in a full, totally free manner, dramatizing the byproducts of that labor which are magically projected above it as its ultimate goals, power, and vacations. So, for the first part of it, then, we have precisely your celebrities. As he says, spectacular representations of a living human being. Then they have this relation into general banality of precisely representing a specific role in society. Then the function of these celebrities is to precisely act out a specific lifestyle or social political viewpoint. And there's dramatization, which precisely happens, of the thing that's trying to be sold with the overall message underlying everything is to have it in relation to power and vacations. So, an example that comes into mind is a specific celebrity advertising something like L'Oreal shampoo. Let's go with a basic example of that. You have precisely whoever it is, let's say Cindy Crawford, I'm being old school and I thought of this, just somebody random advertising specifically a role. What is that? To be beautiful. To have fantastic hair dandruff free so therefore what you're going to do is to precisely represent how you can be beautiful just like cindy crawford with the shampoo and then what is ultimately the goal of that is to feel something in relation to that shampoo to be beautiful to feel like you're on your holidays even. Let's say it takes place on a beach and it's running through imagery of, you know, beaches and vacations and so forth. Hence why you get some weird advertisements when you think about it for perfumes. Why are they always on luxury yachts and beaches and all weird things that happen in perfume <laughs> adverts? This randomly comes to mind as well. Why? Why is that? Because it's always to give this idea of being on vacation and feeling good, therefore. Because what is it all about? When we're on vacation, we feel relaxed. We feel good about ourselves. We leave behind precisely who the role that we play in the usual sense of it and suddenly we become relaxed and somebody different for that little bit of period of time because nobody knows us anymore but also you get this sense of power from what you're buying as well let's say in the very basic sense of it it'll give you the power to make your whites whiter the lovely idea of Daz coming back again. Or it'll give you the power to get rid of dandruff. Or it'll give you the power to make sure that your 
get rid of all the horrible smells if it's an air freshener so forth. <laughs> but it'll get rid of all the smells and give you a nice lovely exotic smell to go with it. It's like old jasmine and whatever it is at the same time. So we've got all this loveliness to do with celebrities to start as often. Let's continue on because you've got another fantastic quote to discuss. Entering the spectacle as a model to be identified with, he renounces all autonomous qualities in order to identify himself with the general law of obedience to the succession of things. The admirable people who personify the system are well known for not being what they seem. They attain greatness by stooping below the reality of the most insignificant individual life, and everyone knows it. So, we have, starting off the second quote then, what happens with celebrities, they have a relation into everything they can identify with, then they announce all the individual qualities about them, something that makes them different, in order for them to precisely have this line of renouncing all autonomous qualities in order to identify himself with the general law of obedience to the succession of things which is just a really posh way of just saying that they just represent the general person or general idea for things the admirable people who personify the system are well known for not being what they seem. So therefore, they take on this persona of being identified with a specific thing. But then everybody knows that what they're doing is part of a performance and are acting and not how they actually are. What we are just seeing is just all this performance and acting part of the celebrity part of it. Another way of putting it would be everybody knows that they're lying to us. It's not how they genuinely are. It's not even what they may even genuinely think. But what we're given to us through the spectacle, through the performance, is precisely what adheres to the social and cultural norms and their values that everybody accepts. It's not what the individual thinks anymore because it's something that everybody can identify with. Everybody will like. Everybody will think they're grey because it all conforms to the norms. Let's say, in relation to beauty, that it would be precisely a celebrity made up in a specific way that would then conform to the beauty standards of that given culture. It might not be exactly how the person would want to look themselves, but that wouldn't matter, because then everybody else would think they're beautiful because it conforms to the norms of that society. And this is where you can have conflicts and contrasts within a given society and that also be completely fine. It's a great quote, although I can't remember exactly where specifically it is for chapter 3, but that's where also you could think, on the one hand within society you can have one specific idea 
and norm. And then on the other hand, you think, well, maybe something like punk rock, something that of opinion that's been anarchic and so forth, would somehow conflict with that society's views. And De Boer is very much like, no, it doesn't at all. Because what we have is just two sides of a coin ultimately we just have two ways in which the spectacle is at work and the spectacle very much takes upon both roles to say well you can have your cake and eat it too is another way of putting it to say you can have one specific role in society that argues for let's say conservatism and then on the other hand you can have your person running about in the street liking the sex pistols liking punk rock music putting their hair in a mohawk for instance it's all very much adheres to the way in which the spectacle works goes back into those points that we touched upon at the start it precisely morphs and changes itself but it also does itself in such a way that you can have at the same time functioning quite well within the system of two completely different conflicting viewpoints why because basically there's there's people to buy both products would be another way of putting it that on the one hand you have your hot topic shop and then on the other hand you have your whatever shop it would be for people to go and dress in another way that wouldn't be dressing like hot topic and so on there is always a market basically for people and that's what the way in which you could think about it that Debor is trying to say. So overall for the celebrity section then we could say what happens to people when they become celebrities is that they lose all the sense of individuality in order for them to adopt specific norm. And therefore when you adopt the norm and we've said that the norm itself doesn't have to be conforming to a specific viewpoint, but as a norm, let's say, it's precisely advocating a specific lifestyle within that. Be that a punk rock style, be that a, a conservative lifestyle, and so forth. And then also with the next part of that is with them advocating a specific lifestyle, what do they sell back to us, is precisely one of the ideas is that owning specific products is being advertised is empowering to us in some way. It'll enrich our lives in some way, which is then a nice way to go into the banality and dissatisfaction with commodities because precisely they're always advertised to us and presented to us as something spectacular and something must have we absolutely must have these products but is that the case and this is something that also De Boer touches upon a nice chunky quote to work through here as it states each new product is ceremoniously acclaimed as a unique creation offering a dramatic shortcut to total consummation. But the objects that promise uniqueness can be offered up for mass consumption only if they are numerous enough to be mass produced. This prestigiousness of mediocre objects of this kind 
is solely due to the fact that they have been placed, however briefly, at the centre of social life and held as a revelation of the unfathomable purposes of production. But the object that was prestigious in the spectacle becomes mundane as soon as it is taken home by its consumer at the same time as by all its other consumers. Too late it reveals its essential poverty, a poverty that inevitably reflects the poverty of its production. Meanwhile, some other object is already replacing it as justification of the system and demanding its own moment of acclaim. So quite a lot for us to try and get through. So let's try and take this one chunk at a time. Each new product is ceremoniously acclaimed as unique creation, offering a dramatic shortcut to total consummation, but the objects that promise uniqueness can be offered up for mass production only if they're numerous enough to be mass produced. Easy enough to start as off, it has to be in the realms of mass production, and it's precisely those objects of mass production that are offered back to us as a form of spectacle to be bought as products easy peasy the next part of it then says the prestigiousness of mediocre objects of this kind is solely due to the fact that they have been placed however briefly at the center of social life and hailed as a revelation of unfathomable purposes of production which is another way of saying what happens within any advertising that we could think of is the imagery will say to us as we have done with shampoo, as you've done with Daz, making your clothes whiter than white, and so forth, has all got to be placed at the center of social life in some given way. How is it going to affect your everyday life? And it's going to affect it because it's going to improve it and make it better. It's going to empower you. It's going to give you a way in which you can precisely make your clothes whiter than white. It's going to make your hair completely dandruff-free and so forth. But, as it continues on, the object that was prestigious in the spectacle becomes mundane as soon as it's taken home by the consumer at the same time as by all its other consumers. Too late it reveals its essential poverty, a poverty that inevitably reflects the poverty of its production. So as soon as you take the actual object home, what is Debor saying is when you have the, the actual object in your hand, then you use this shampoo and do you have this miraculous, spectacular experience that they do in the advertisements? No. One advertisement that specifically comes to mind in relation to shampoo is one called Herbal Essences here in the UK. And it used to be an orgasmic experience. And women actually faking sort of an orgasmic experience where they had shampoo. And this is, of course, great to say, well, do you want an orgasmic experience in the shower? Absolutely. And so you go and you buy that shampoo and then you put it in your hair and then what happens? You just simply put it in and wash it out again. It loses all that spectacular nature of it. It loses its whole relation into being a spectacle because it's just a thing that you put in your hair and you wash out. 
easily enough. Um, this is where in which we get the whole banality and dissatisfaction with commodities. Because at some point, of course, it's not always going to happen once we just get home. I think this is a good key point to make against the board here in a little bit. It's not as soon as we get home do we immediately fall out of love with a thing. Let's say if it's in relation to hobbies, somebody's going to be incredibly happy that they have a specific object. But let's say over time, number of years and so forth, they can be just have this whole relation to realizing the banality of what they're doing or the banality of their own project of their hobby and so forth they realize that their figure collection that they've mounted up over the years is just a bunch of plastic figures for instance and what does that show precisely we lose the whole spectacular nature of the product and that we realize it's banality ultimately but meanwhile <laughs> it's just so great for the de Boer saying well meanwhile when you have this banality of one specific object that could happen of course we're saying that doesn't necessarily happen just as soon as you get home it could happen over a number of years but even if that's the case there's always new products continually always saying to us in a spectacular way buy me use me you'll have a fantastic experience it'll have some incredible benefit to your everyday life please purchase me and it'll not only just be beneficial to your life it'll be spectacular it'll be amazing it'll do something better than anything else could possibly ever do you take it home you immediately realize the banality of it immediately dissatisfied with it then there's another shampoo even more spectacular makes your whites even whiter than the dads and so forth there's always those other products out there even what another example would be supermarkets and how supermarkets can try and outdo one another and so forth to say we offer our products even cheaper than the other supermarket says no we're even cheaper shop with us and so forth there's that continual cycle and competition that always happens all the time so what can we say overall rounding off then is that the spectacle has a global outlook and transforms its agenda based upon each country. Politicians use imagery in order to invoke particular emotions or particular imagery may be associated with particular political views. Celebrities perform, act a certain lifestyle and make us mesmerized by the products that they're using. That whole notion of, oh my god, I can't believe X is using this. Oh my god, I can actually go and buy this product as well. Products are meant to empower us and meant to be beneficial for our everyday life. But we become disillusioned and realize the banality of the product as it loses its spectacular nature. So, feel free to drop me an email with any questions. At my address, dissectingphilosophy@gmail.com. Check out the Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash dissectingphilosophy to check out the ongoing discussion of Slavoj Zizek's Pandemic 2, as well as the full discussion of Pandemic 1. The first episodes for those are completely free, and the rest of them are available for a £5 
subscription. Tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. K-O dash F-I dot com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And lastly, I can be found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you'll join me next time.